Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Chit Chat. I'm Jeremy Roberts, here with my host, Rebecca Rison, and with our special guest, Dr. Amy Wells-Dolan. Dr. Amy Wells-Dolan is the Associate Dean of the School of Education and Professor in Higher Education here at the University of Mississippi. Her background includes academic administration, student affairs administration, and fundraising. Her research focuses on the history of higher education in the South. She is deeply involved in the development and implementation of the Carnegie Project on the Education Doctorate, the CPED doctoral program with an emphasis in higher education, as well as the larger CPED initiative in the School of Education here at the University of Mississippi. Her recent publications reflect these interests and have appeared in the International Journal, Higher Education Teaching and Learning, Higher Education Handbook of Theory and Research, Today's College Students, a Reader, and Expanding the Donor Base in Higher Education. Dr. Amy Wells-Dolan, welcome to the Chit Chat. Thank you so much. We are so glad that you are here. So if you could tell us about yourself and how you got started in higher education. You know, I, I, a lot of us in higher or in education talk about uh, having dreams of being a teacher when we were younger. And they say with career aspirations, sometimes our uh, childhood dreams reflect what will be longstanding interests so that we, we have a good sense of that. And so I remember lining up every doll that I had in the house, every doll that my brother had, and even my brother and tried to teach them, you know. So um, it's funny because I had workbooks for elementary schools, but obviously I had, I had college in my subconscious because I put them on the steps in our house going downstairs, more lecture style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was, I guess I was ready. But uh, when I got to college, I went to a liberal arts college in Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, and I didn't realize or think about the fact that until later that you could teach adults, and I have always enjoyed working with adults, and uh, then, and it's that experience of college and how it changed me and others that made me want to go into higher education. And now we're doing higher education in a pandemic, which makes life pretty interesting as well. Um, So how do you think that's impacted education, especially um, higher education? I think it has impacted us a great deal. Um, I think that the challenges are on a couple of fronts. Um, I think one very positive challenge is that it has forced a lot of us to uh, move on technology in ways we may not have been comfortable or ready to move, but it made us use resources uh, to be resourceful and to use resources that were available to us to continue the mission of teaching and learning. And so that implement integration and implementation of technology, I think is a fantastic thing. Uh, I also think it has strained budgets uh, potentially in ways that we will experience for a long time to come. Uh, And so that is an issue where the pandemic wasn't a sole 
uh, instigator of that change. Some of the uh, some of the enrollment declines were set in motion before the pandemic. The uh, economic effects of the pandemic uh, certainly uh, create a situation that is exacerbated. Some of the financial tensions in higher education. And then finally, I think one of the things, and there are many ways, but I think one of the interesting things to see is how higher education can put research to the problem of the pandemic. Everything from how we are doing uh, the Sentinel testing on our own campus and utilizing uh, uh, faculty, staff, and uh, graduate students to, uh, to, uh, to monitor and to do contract contract tracing, that's a hard one to say. I think those are those are positive things. Even even projects at the University of Arizona where they're using uh, wastewater to identify uh, places on campus that could have a surge in COVID. So I, I think it gives opportunity to see uh, an immediate value of research an application to public health that I think are, are pretty important. So those are just a few. Mm -hmm. So and, how has COVID changed the face of higher education? I think in some ways, um, I, I, I will be a bit of a contrarian uh, in some ways. One of the things that I write about in my own work and my own research and am working on now is the fact that there, despite uh, technological advancements, uh, despite advances in, uh, in our society that in some ways have expanded, in many ways have expanded access and opportunity, uh, not fully, but in many ways. I think the face of higher education uh, is demonstrating its fidelity to an old idea. And uh, one of those old ideas is sort of the residential campus learning environment. I think that there is an element of that in American society that we crave and see as idealistic for uh, uh, the education of young and emerging adults. Uh, if not, if we might not use the word pastoral, uh, there is certainly an identification and desire to have and maintain that experience. And, and so in that way, um, I think it has changed the face a bit because it has exposed, it's kind of taken some of the, if we, if you will, the makeup off of that. Mm -hmm. And we realize that when we cannot be together in an idyllic setting, uh, that creates an economic strain and tension that students and families as consumers and I, I'm not saying that's their only value, and I'm not saying that's the only nature of our relationship, but it can, it constrains some of our consumer uh, ideals uh, about higher education. Um, and so uh, I think that has exposed some of the nature of our ideal and, 
and how do you deal with that in a pandemic in a situation where you cannot be close together in a pastoral setting? Um, and certainly the institutions in America uh, represent a vast uh, array and they're not all residential, uh, certainly. Uh, but what I'm talking about is kind of a fidelity to an ideal that is inherent in student life in the way we think about the maturation of adults um, and the way we, for, in, we uh, socialize for certain social values around uh, 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 our American ideals, uh, good and bad. And so, and you are, um, I'm sure, busy all the time, pre-COVID and post-COVID and in the middle of all this uh, pandemic. So tell us about your responsibilities as the Associate Dean of the School of Education. And then also, has this changed in the pandemic in terms of day-to-day responsibilities? In, in many ways, in some ways, uh, my responsibilities, there are a stream that is very constant. Uh, at other times, I feel like there has been kind of a flattening, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, my role, uh, in many ways, I, I, I guess my role is teaching and learning. And so there is a huge portion of my job that is my faculty job. Sometimes I feel like I go home, I do my administrative job in the daytime, sprinkled with teaching and learning. And then at night, I do teaching and learning sprinkled with administration. It's sort of a flip. Obviously, when you're tired, stressed, strung out, it's harder to generate the uh, emotional, intellectual, and uh, uh, just uh, attention getting bandwidth that you need to do to kind of invert your day and to flip it like that. So I would call, and I do call this, my responsibilities in the School of Education are to support our students and our faculty. Uh, My goal and my work as associate dean is to see that students and faculty have what they need. And uh, Jeremy and Rebecca, if you talked with me in an interview, I would probably say something like and often say, uh, I will probably not be able to or we will probably not be able to provide you with all you want. Mm But it's my job to get you what you need to be productive and to move forward. Uh, because if you're not productive or feel like you can progress, it, it makes it uh, a challenge for you. So you're not as happy and content. And then we can't keep you as a student or as a faculty or staff member. No. Now, in the pandemic, it's interesting because I do report to the dean as associate dean. We have a lot, uh, not a lot, we're actually, we're pretty slim. We have an assistant dean for student advising and field experience, Dr. Whitney Webb. And so their shop works on undergraduate advising and field experience. And so they uh, have continued full steam. And then we have a director of assessment, Dr. Ann Monroe, who has continued her roles. 
the bigger challenge, uh, uh, of course, in, in, in focusing on teaching and learning is that I work with our department chairs to make sure that their students and faculty are being served. Mm -hmm. So communicating with them, it's really hard at first to figure out how to communicate by Zoom when you cannot read people's expressions or fully get their tone or even renew your relationship or crack a joke in the same way. Uh, so it was a big adjustment for me at first. I felt a lot of stress uh, handling that part of it. But uh, my job is around uh, curriculum and support of the tenure and promotion process. I do a lot to support our student awards ceremony and our student recognition, our faculty uh, awards and recognition. Um, I stand in for the dean as he needs me to. Um, we certainly haven't been going as many places. <laughs> so I've had to, that's been curtailed a bit. So, yeah. you know, when you're Zoom, you don't have to, to be there as much yeah. in person. So. Those are some of my some of my jobs. Okay. So speaking about mentoring students, we've had a lot of people or we've heard a lot of people pay a lot of compliments to your work in that area. So what is your personal philosophy of mentorship? Uh, first of all, I'm really honored that uh, you've heard that. Uh, uh, I am surprised in some way because I am a very human advisor, uh, meaning um, I do not, with, with uh, a couple of different roles, uh, in fact, kind of carrying, so right now I'm, I'm teaching three classes, history of higher ed, one of our METP courses uh, for the Mississippi Excellence in Teaching Program with undergraduates. A, um, a, a course uh, for an orientation process on public policy. And I'm working with doctoral students and I think there are 13 or 14 of them that are writing and working. So it, it, it's a very full load. And so I'm not perfect. And I think uh, one of my philosophies is that uh, if, if, you can accept me as human, I certainly can accept you as human, knowing that as adult learners, life comes up. I have had uh, wonderful experiences mentoring uh, adult uh, masters and doctoral students. Uh, they challenge me, they humble me, they teach me things. Um, you know, thinking about some of the students I've worked with, what they know about academic advising or intercollegiate athletics or uh, research and sponsored programs or fraternity and sorority life or leadership mm -hmm. programs constantly enriches uh, my knowledge base. And it, it gives me attention to some of their stresses and their preoccupations. But those, their life, their people with lives and their jobs have demands. So I'm very, I tend to be very flexible and forgiving, uh, which gets me in trouble. 
because I need my students <laughs> to be flexible and forgiving. So I'm not sure that it's a philosophy is just as much a, a spiritual commitment to my role in higher education as a steward of the academy. And, and, and it may say, sound weird, but just out of a deep um, love for them as people. Uh, and the growth I see in them over time. Uh, it's one of the greatest uh, honors of my life is to have that window into that intellectual development and to see them go on to great things. You know, so as a life of a mentor, you have a period where you are uh, I'm not going to say in a power role because I don't want it to be that way. I do realize there are dynamics of that. But then, uh, uh, Rebecca and Jeremy, you get to see that intellect and that intellectual development for the projects they're working on. And you see that carry them through to an authentic demonstration of their knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's often a point at which I cry. You know, like, it's like you, you almost want to go, and it's not you that the, is the artist, but it's like, ta-da, you know, like, look at this great, this great poor person who has grown and developed and contributed, and then they develop into their own authority, and so that's just beautiful uh, to see. So I, I, I guess deep down, in some ways, Rebecca, I connect as a counselor with developmental theory that I like to see that. And so that's part of the process, you know, uh, part of the process. And it's really enjoyable. Well, and clearly you're passionate about it. You, you mm -hmm. seem like you really enjoy everything that you do. And um, I would imagine teaching is also something that you're passionate about as well. Is there a favorite class you like to teach or classes that you like to teach? Oh, sure. I love, I'm teaching history of higher education now. And uh, I love teaching that class. I usually teach it in the fall. Uh, during the pandemic, I put it in a challenge to do it hybrid. Mm -hmm. So I invite students to come to the class, to be in the classroom, masked, social distance, uh, doing what we would do in the classroom and then students to be on Zoom. And so a, a, a majority of the students are Zooming. Their level of comfort or, or uh, let's just say convenience is such that they want that experience. And then there are some stalwarts who are coming to class. Uh, and uh, I love, I do like lecturing. So that early experience of lecturing to dolls, mm -hmm. I try not to do it every week or rely <laughs> on it. Uh, last night uh, or two nights ago was one of my favorite uh, times is to talk about the connections of the medieval university to the American university. So what, what came from medieval society or the university uh, as it was conceived to uh, the American college and university, what, what is it that makes it special? And um, I like sharing that because I want students uh, to understand uh, it, that it is an important 
actually, a, I will call it a grave social responsibility that we carry when we are in the, in the enterprise of higher education, that we have a social obligation because of that privilege uh, that was negotiated centuries ago by the early scholars who formed guilds that became the university, those exemptions, privileges, and charters that actually form the corporate identity of the university that makes it special. So all this other stuff, the infrastructure, is really not as important as those corporate, that corporate identity and legacy. And I'd, I'd like to tell students that there are three professions that wear a gown. Um, and those are, if you think of it, ministers, judges, and professors. And so there is this deep abiding responsibility for society um, that is so important. And, and so I like to try to give students in that class a sense of that social responsibility. I don't know the extent to which I succeed, but I, I want people to understand that. It, it means that uh, in the end, we have to use our power for good mm -hmm. and not evil. Uh, and that's really uh, significant. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, speaking of things that we heard that you love, we've also heard that you love qualitative research. Mm -hmm. So what draws you to this type of research? And are there any particular studies that you have enjoyed working on or that you're currently working on that are in this realm of qualitative research? Well, I do a lot of consulting with student projects that are qualitative in nature. So my qualitative background actually uh, was built and nourished by historical study. Mm -hmm. So in history, we use documents uh, to, as the cornerstone of research, historical documents. And they could be everything from a piece of paper, obviously, to a film uh, in an earlier or more recent time uh, to another kind of artifact. Uh, if you visit the archives and special collections, which I'm privileged to have the support of Dr. Lee McWhite, uh, political papers archivist, she hosts my class every year. This year we did it by Zoom. Sometimes she shows a, ga a, a canister from uh, the uh, uh, riots that took place on campus during mm -hmm. the integration of James Mer Meredith for the tear gas. So even a thing like a metal canister that held tear gas, you know, so those, are, those documents are important. Then of course you have observations and observations uh, are really important. Um, and then of course, interviews. So I like to combine those things in my work. Um, and I like to encourage students to do that. And so I mentor students on a lot of qualitative projects where they are interviewing people to gain an understanding. Um, and so there are quite a few dissertations on file in ProQuest 
if you just look up me as advisor, you will see at the University of Mississippi and you know University of New Orleans where I was previously, you'll see quite a few of them where people have used qualitative interviewing techniques and documents to gain a, a greater understanding of their environment, environment or people's experiences in the environment. Uh, so things will happen like the other day, Saturday, uh, Friday, maybe I was talking to my dear colleague, KB Malir, who was talking about a project of how people experience the pandemic from a perspective of higher ed administration. And he wanted to know like how people were using uh, they, uh, vacation time or sick leave time mm -hmm. in the midst of that. And so he's like, would you be interested in, in helping advise with us on that? And I'm like, yes, of course. And then we've done a project where we're not finished, but we're, we've been working to interview the students who were LGBTQ at the University of Mississippi or other universities in the South in the period of um, uh, the you know post 1950s mm -hmm. and some of their experiences on campus so i love uh advising and helping them to see that uh but i just want to add things like uh you know one of the my favorite pieces i've written that i'm going to share with a doctoral seminar soon has to do with a project i was trying to better understand uh the integrations integration of new orleans school districts and, uh, and, and, and what happened in St. Bernard Parish in Louisiana uh, back when I was a professor there. And I was actually teaching a class there when I, uh, we were off campus, so we're off campus at UNO and we're going into the school setting to teach a group of teachers at St. Bernard, in St. Bernard Parish. Mm -hmm. So as you walk into the school, I started seeing what you see in many schools, a giant composite class portrait of all the individual students at the school. And, you know, that becomes a time capsule of the visual depiction of integration. And so, you know, it'll start out many white faces, many white faces. Then you start getting to periods where you'll see a very few faces of color. Mm -hmm. And then you go into this situation where there were all male faces. And I was like, what is going on? How could there be all males at a public high school uh, in the 70s and 80s? And so those are the kinds of documents or experiences and observations that I like to have students make uh, to start asking questions about what happened here and how do you explain it. So those are, those are things I like to do. Uh, I wish I had more students that were interested in how to incorporate those kinds of observations in their work uh, of historical documents. Uh, as a lot of folks are very interested in interview collection, which I understand and value. And appreciate, but I, I'd really enjoy the puzzles that documents bring. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and so in terms of also just the, you know, think about all the different roles that you have and the things that you do and so many people that you help. Um, I know sometimes you may interact with on occasion probation students. That's kind of what Jeremy and I specialize in, um, in academic support. And do you have any advice for like this particular group of students, um, probation students, or just kind of undergraduates in general, like college adjustment, things like that? Um, I think that one of the things that can be intimidating are the social expectations around uh, the college experience. Um, in fact, um, I used to work in orientation at the and with academic uh, with the orient academic orientation course as a secondary assignment and parent fundraising at the University of Kentucky, and we had the chancellor speak at our fall orientation, and every year, that chancellor would say, "These are the best years of your life," and. One year we were like, we pulled him aside and we said, we might not, you might not say that, right? Think about that some of the expectation that reinforces or sets up. The thing about the college experience that is different uh, than other experiences is that privilege we have. And part of the privilege is a time of exemption from social pressures and adult, some adult responsibilities. I know that there are students who come with full adult responsibilities, absolutely full plates. But the college experience allows for a period of reflection. Reflection, I have found is extremely valuable for learning. Uh, but reflection, as you know, is in counseling, is not always pain-free. Exactly. So I would encourage students to recognize that regardless of their experience, uh, there is a social pressure to pretend that everything is all right uh, and that it's the greatest time when it is not that way always on the ground. And it is okay when it's not. And actually, in some ways, it might be uh, better if it's not because it may mean you've hit a barrier or a place where growth and development is possible because your reflection is telling you or something is showing you this pattern of behavior or the way I've been thinking about this doesn't work now. Uh, I think many students experience that on the academic side where they realize they got through high school fairly okay, without a lot of deep study. And some of the patterns of study we learn in high school aren't as effective in college. And so you may find quickly that those patterns wear thin and, uh, and it may cause trouble with your grade point average. Uh, and so that's why I want students to recognize that the imperfection 
is often a place of growth um, and would encourage them to use their resources available to them. There are so many. I think one of the things about the University of Mississippi that is most special is the level of individual care that staff and faculty have for students. Mm -hmm. Even despite different politics, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, there is this basic level of regard that can be utilized uh, to one's benefit. Uh, so take heart that this period of reflection uh, can be, and maybe a barrier or something that says, okay, I have to change course, it can be a gift. Uh, because some people don't get to that until way down the road. Mm -hmm. But I, I think a life well lived is going to require uh, some of those periods of reflection or being stopped or being diverted. And that it's those periods that are of our greatest challenge that create the greatest rewards. Uh, I'll stop my lecture with that, but I, I, I think there's a, uh, there is also a uh, pressure or a temptation in student affairs um, and in administration to highlight students where it seems like everything has been swimmingly good or we we recruit the student leaders who did not have some of those uh, stumbling places uh, but I encourage us to expand our idea of what a leader can be to recognize that people who have had difficult times or challenges can also be great leaders or uh, connectors for others uh, to help them navigate the college experience. Very good points. Very good points. And we are also excited to ask you some questions about your college experience. Okay. So I have a couple of lightning round questions for you. Okay. Uh, the lights turn on in my office as soon as I say that. So these <laughs> are so illuminating your college experience. Um, so tell us about your freshman year. What was uh, your life like at that stage? You know, I was a first generation college student. Um, not, People in my family had not gone to college, and I picked a small college, Transylvania University Liberal Arts School, um, which actually turned out to be uh, a great choice and one of the great benefits. Uh, but I didn't completely feel that my freshman year. Um, I found myself um, enjoying it, but not enjoying it fully. Um, and I felt a push me pull you between some of the things that were going on at home and some of the things that were going on in campus. My brother was still at home in high school. So there were things we're close in age. So there were family things going on. Um, so I remember my sophomore year, uh, actually, I so finished my freshman year. I did okay, got an okay GPA, but it still didn't feel fully right. I contemplated transferring and uh, 
I even waited to go back to Transylvania to the very last day to move into the residence hall. I was like, I am not, <laughs> I just don't know if I can do this again. Uh, but somehow I started uh, doing something that, I mean, may seem crazy, but I, I uh, started dressing up for class. And, and I don't mean to reinforce feminist stereotypes. I'm just saying of, of appearance. But for me, when I started doing that, and I don't know what prompted me to do that, it suddenly gave me more confidence and I started showing up for things. And it was that showing up that helped me better integrate my sophomore year. And so while many students kind of have a, uh, what we call can be a sophomore slump, that's the time period where I felt like I began to make connections. I began to grow more confident and I applied to things uh, that I wanted to do as a student leader and that kind of thing and took some risk. Not all of them came through, but some of them did. And so I started being able to, to tap into some of that leadership. I'm long-winded. I'm not much of a lightning round. You know? <laughs> Oh, that's that's so good to know because I think you know it. Sometimes students do have kind of a picture that things are going to be, you know, perfect, and mm -hmm. that's just kind of a natural process because our society is amped up about college, and college is a fantastic experience. But I think it's helpful to know too that sometimes there are some ups and downs, and life happens no matter what stage of development um, a person is in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, and one of the things I key remember is remember being on financial aids work study my freshman mm -hmm. year, and I had a lot of hours. And, you know, I came from a small county where you knew people in Kentucky. Uh, people knew me. They knew my family. They knew resources. It, it wasn't as big a transition as to when you get in the college environment. And I saw people with a lot of disposable income. And that was like shocking to me, uh, the, the juxtaposition of that. I began to realize a difference my freshman year. And I think that really, that really hit me. Uh, then the fraternity sorority recruitment stuff and all of that, you know, some of those dynamics around uh, socioeconomic status and class, uh, it, there at that school played out at that time. Yeah. Well, and in terms of, you know, inspiration, I think all of our jobs, we try to help students and keep them motivated. And, and certainly you are um, a huge, you know, source of motivation for a lot of people. Was there somebody that um, you found to be particularly inspiring over your course of your career development? I've had so many people that have been uh, so inspiring. Uh, you know, I think of people uh, in my high school, my, uh, uh, my speech coach, uh, Bruce Florence, uh, who taught, uh, who eventually started a branch of the community college in my hometown. I think of uh, the student affairs folks at Transylvania University. They 
became my dearest friends. The nurse, on, we had a nurse on campus. We didn't have a health center. We had a nurse and uh, 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 Pat Parks was her name and, or is her name, and Kathy Howell, who worked in the Office of President's Life. And then the directors and folks and student activities, Dean of Students, they, that's what showed me that you could work in higher education. And then a woman in the Dean's office, uh, Marion Millay, all of them got me to that point. The folks at Kent State were so supportive where I went for my master's degree and worked in student affairs. And uh, that list is long. And then at University of Kentucky, um, my mentors there, Professor John Thielen, we had him on campus. And uh, a woman uh, that worked in fundraising taught me a lot about stewardship, uh, Marianne Vimont. And uh, so I have, uh, and then from an academic world, colleagues make a huge difference. The first colleagues who hired me, Mike Paulson and Barbara Johnson, to my colleagues in higher education here. I mean, to me, all of those folks are a true reward. And that's really the biggest reward of higher education is the environment you're in, mm -hmm. the opportunity to associate with others, with you all, even by Zoom. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, do you have any final words or parting wisdom for our viewers or listeners about how they can get involved in higher education or the love that you want to share with them about higher education? I think one of the uh, biggest things we can do uh, on two fronts, I talk to people about careers in higher education, knowing that that there are so many roles on college and university campuses, over 4,500 post-secondary institutions in the U.S. That's not even looking internationally. We've placed students all over the world in, in our country, in our program, that it's a fascinating world of work and a place to be associated. Uh, I would encourage people to use work to teach them what it is that they enjoy and the environments they enjoy uh, because the advanced study of higher education may not be their field. The advanced study of English or history or um, uh, of uh, public policy or um, engineering may be the field for them. And so that period of reflection that college provides and sometimes work after college higher ed setting or not, can teach you more about yourself and help you reflect. So I don't think work is ever a bad thing if you, if you can get it. <laughs> and, and then um, I think uh, uh, being prepared, uh, I think some hard times are gonna come for higher education. Um, historically, some of the periods of growth and expansion have been fueled by investment by government, uh, you think of the land grant movement and then the GI Bill and later the Higher Education Act. Um, the uh, reliance on enrollment and individual financing of higher education and increasing cost of higher education have uh, taught, 
have, have challenged us and will continue to challenge us. So I think we have to approach our roles and our opportunities with um, an attitude of, of, of appreciation for the opportunity to, to, to imagine and teach uh, uh, young people, adults in our society. Uh, I think that that's very important. Um, and I hope that we will show the resilience um, in the years ahead uh, to continue that core mission of teaching and learning. Well, we definitely appreciate all of your wisdom and expertise and giving us a lot of valuable time um, that you have. We know your time is limited. So thank you so much for joining us. It was very great to chat with you. And uh, certainly we know um, our listeners and viewers are going to love to hear what you have to say. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you, Rebecca. You know I can talk your ear off. So, <laughs> Oh, this is good. This is fantastic. So, so uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, for Rebecca Rison, I'm Jeremy Roberts. Thank you so much, Dr. Wells-Dolan, for joining us on the chit-chat today. We will see y'all soon. Have a good one. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye.